WPSL Port St. Lucie. It's 9 o'clock and time for We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in today to the show. We're really glad you're here. Stay tuned for as much as you can the next hour. We're on live until 10 o'clock Eastern here in St. Lucie. And uh, this show is brought to you on the basis of We Are Just Christians. That's the name of the show. Brought to you by the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. Trying to encourage people to take a look at the idea of going back just to being a New Testament Christian, not part of some denomination or not uh, just making up your own religion as you go along, but take a look at what the scriptures say. So it's a live call-in show. In just a moment, I'm going to give you the numbers uh, to reach us here in WPSL. My name is Mike Schmidt. Uh, I'm the preacher of one of the elders, and with me is Gary Jones, as usual. How are you doing, Gary? I'm doing pretty good this morning, Mike. Good. So we're glad we can be with you. And uh, the, the idea is for you to call in, and we'll interact and talk about different spiritual issues, whether you agree or disagree with us. Maybe you've got a complaint about religion or religious people or the Bible or something else or God, something is concerning you. We'd be glad to talk with you about that. I'm not saying we'll be able to agree or even give you an answer that satisfies you, but we'll try to point you to the scriptures. That's the main thing we're going to try to do is point you to an answer in the Bible that you can look up as best we can. If we can't, we'll tell you that. Perhaps we need to go back sometimes and redo the things we've talked about before or add to them because we you know, can't figure everything out here on the spur of the moment on the fly. But we'll be glad to talk to you about that. And we'd like to have a conversation. So the ground rules are you call in and we'll take your question or comment. We'll try to give you some analysis and some scripture on that. And uh, we're going to always give you the last word because this show is not about proving somebody wrong or arguing with somebody. Uh, we, we believe that there is a right or wrong. And probably either one of us is right, one wrong, and maybe both of us are wrong. But in any event, we're not here to embarrass or put you on the spot. So we're going to give you the last word if you call in. And hopefully we can have a conversation about these things <clears throat> so we can clarify any misunderstandings about whatever's going on. So call in. The numbers here in Port St. Lucie live are 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the number here in Port St. Lucie. Right there at the station will patch you through to us here on the air. And we'd be glad to hear your questions or comments about whatever subject is on your mind. You don't even have to talk about what we're talking about. We come prepared to talk about a few things, but you don't have to talk about what we're prepared to talk about. You can talk about whatever you want to. We really appreciate that when you do that. Now, if you'd like to reach us and can't call in the live, you can reach us by text message. You can text us during the show, and you can also text us um, maybe during the week if, you're, uh, if you can't text now. And there's two text numbers. My, I have one for Mike at 772 772- 260-6120-772-260-6120 is my number. Gary's number is very similar. 772-260-6220 is Gary's text number. So we'd be glad to hear from you either now during the show. We try to either comment on what you've said or uh, respond to that if we possibly can while we're live. But if not, we can maybe get back to you later. Or perhaps you can text us during the week a comment or a question, we'd be glad to hear from you anytime at those two numbers, 772-260-6120, 772-260-6220. A little bit later, I'll give you some information about our website and some other ways to listen to the show, so you can tell your friends and, and relatives about that, either you could, they can listen live or 
two recordings, but I'll get back. We'll come back to that a little bit later. You know, Gary, last week we had, um, we were trying to deal with a question or two, got a call or two, and so therefore we probably didn't get all the way finished with the answer to the question before us. At least I didn't feel like we did. Maybe we did. But we had a question that was uh, emailed in or texted in, I can't remember which one, about is it right for a woman to baptize someone? And um, I don't really think we, we, we started analyzing that, but probably not in a way that uh, is very complete with people. Now, I mentioned we want to distinguish something, a couple of different ideas that people have in their mind here about baptism. Number one, baptism is not pictured as a, a sacrament of the church, particularly, that, some, that the church has to dispense this sacrament of baptism. Certainly not presented that way in the New Testament. It's not a ritual. It's not a ritual that you go through and you do to babies and church dispenses the sacrament. It's really about you, a person, responding to the call of the gospel uh, over the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to become a new creature and come to him and have your sins forgiven. And, And that's what baptism is about. And so then, but then when you look at what that, so that, I don't think there's any real 100% 100% restriction on who can baptize somebody because baptism is not about who's doing the baptizing. That's why I'm making the point about it's not a sacrament of the church. It's not about who's doing the baptizing. It's about what the person who wants to be baptized, what they believe and what they intend to do, and then based upon what they believe and what they intend to do by being dunked in water, then God responds to that and does his work, which is forgiving sins and cre- creating a new creature. And that's why Colossians 2 talks about that this baptism is about faith and the operation of God. Okay, not, not your working that you're doing or the working of this person who's holy so he can baptize you because he's holy. That's not how the Bible presents it at all. Right. The, the more important thing that I think we discussed, Mike, was that a, a candidate for baptism has to have a certain amount of knowledge of the gospel and of Jesus Christ and the things around him, and the things that uh, were intended for us to know, and and be repentant, and be willing to turn, realizing uh, sin, and realizing that it has to be gotten out of their life. It's more about the person being baptized, and his knowledge and understanding, and the authority under which it's done. I would say that. Correct. And so that's right. <laughs> by whose authority are they doing this? The per- that mean I mean by that the person who's being baptized. Right. What authority are they have? do they right. have for what they're doing? How are they? How are they doing? Whose name are they being baptized? Now, there's a, a sort of an, uh, another aspect of this that we brought up was what it means to be baptized or to baptize someone. That's why you have this reading in John four. It kind of gets overlooked, as I mentioned before, because there's a story of the Samaritan woman that comes right after this. So people we don't really read this verse too much, but it says. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, and then parenthesis in the English translation, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So this sets up the story going through Samaria. But he's saying that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had baptized more disciples. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that they were realizing he was making disciples for himself by baptizing them. And that's what he says later. You go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
at the end of his ministry. So this is kind of, he was doing this ahead of time, uh, making disciples of him, of him as opposed to John, as it were. Not opposed to John, but in differentiation from John. And then it says that Jesus himself did not baptize. And I think that, that's a different use of the word baptize. There it means he personally did not physically himself dunk them underwater. So it didn't really make any, it didn't make it any more significant that a person would be baptized by, uh, by Jesus personally or by his disciples. Who was doing the baptizing wasn't the key issue there. It was into whose name were they being baptized and what was the purpose of it in their mind, why they were doing it. And whose who's allegiance were you pledging yes. ourself, yourself to? Yes. So it doesn't um, have much to do with with the idea of... Well, I'd just like to point out one other scripture, and that's in 1 Corinthians 1, and yeah, about verse there. 13, yes, I'll just go uh, is Christ divided? Paul was talking about they were divided among teachers. He says, was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul seems to be concerned that they might be baptizing by some other authority or well, by some authority. He's, he's saying, he's I think he's kind of is almost a rhetorical question. You yes. obviously weren't baptized in my name. Exactly. Why are you following me as if I'm important? But then he goes on to say this, verse 14, I thank God that I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptize in my own name. And yes, I also baptize the household of Stephanus. Besides that, I do not know whether I baptize any other. Now the point there is, uh, that he, Paul is saying that it wasn't him personally doing the baptizing that made any difference to these people. It's whether they were following Jesus Christ, becoming his disciple. Now then, that brings up the question, then, more specifically to the point. Unless you want to add some more to that, Gary. No, no, okay. go ahead. Uh, it brings up more to the point. Can a woman baptize? Now, I think that question has to do with a couple of issues about... Uh, Baptism in a church assembly or in a church and the authority of women uh, as the Bible then dictates the authority of women in the church as opposed to generally. And as I mentioned last week, a couple of parts about that. Number one, I probably baptize at least as many people outside the assembly in a lake, a pool, a pond or somewhere, swimming pool, than I have in the building in a baptistry at the end of a worship service. Now, we always issue an invitation at the end of our services, if anyone would like to be baptized, knowing that they need to do that, today's a good day to do it. We have everything ready here. We have clothes to change into, the towels to dry off. We have we have a warm baptistry. So you can be baptized at any time after any one of our services. And, of course, any time during the week you can call me up or anything else we'll study, and you can be baptized. In fact, the Bible says that they took the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, and they baptized him in the same hour of the night. So they went... What implies to be the middle of the night. Yeah, middle of the night. They went and baptized his men because that's how critical it is that you have your sins forgiven when they, when they need to be forgiven, not at Easter or Christmas like most churches practice it. And so the point I'm making is it isn't a matter of even whether you're baptized in the assembly. Now then, whatever happens in the assembly of the church, though, is regulated by other scriptures which talk about Paul mentioned about a woman of... Um, First Timothy 2 is what you're oh, talking about. Yes, First Timothy 2, verse, beginning of verse 8 or so, that women do not have authority over a man. I think he's speaking specifically about the assembly there because he wants men to pray in every place. The women are learned in subjection. And so he's speaking about the assembly. So there was no authority for a woman to lead in the assembly, to be there, to participate, of course. 
but to lead in the assembly, Paul does not give that authority in the churches. So, whatever role within a local church, whatever functions we might describe as based on the necessity of how we meet, that involve public leadership, then men need to be, as it were, in charge of that. And so, therefore, uh, that would put a limitation, in my view, upon a woman baptizing someone at the end of one of our assemblies, rather than if she wants to baptize someone afterwards or in, their, in her own home or something like that. I have no big problem with that, particularly because I don't find a scripture that, that would prohibit that or some principle that it violates. Well, the only but thing in the I, assembly, I think it would be a violation yeah. because we would view that when a man, is, when you stand there and, and I say something like, of course, we don't, aren't told what to say, I bow, baptize, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I think you're exercising a kind of authority in that sense over that, in that assembly when you do that. Well, and there's a certain amount of education that goes with that. And we talked about the verse uh, where they had only received John's baptism and he asked about the Holy Spirit and they said, well, we've not even heard that there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a little bit of teaching that goes on with that phrase. But the point, the other point, well, teaching I would, needs to happen before the baptism. Yeah, the teaching needs to happen before the baptism. But you know, as a last-minute thing, if they had been verbally spoken to in that way, they would at least know there was something. My, my point is, I think there are probably, I, I would guess, and and I would guess Sharon would feel this way that basically there are women who would feel like they're in a position of authority doing that under any circumstances. And, and they and, shouldn't do it if that's what they feel like. Right, and that's what I'm saying. That that's, are, what I, that's what I'm saying. If you feel like you're transgressing this, if you feel like you're you're doing something that's been commanded against, whatever the circumstances might be, then you shouldn't do it. But I, I don't think that the Bible presents baptism as having to be executed by some church official. That's the right. point I made initially. Yes, and, and I don't think that's the case. It's more of a personal thing. It's about the person being baptized. But if a person thinks that, then that's obviously something that they should take in. To account in in their in their actions, we this is going to go off the track a little bit here, Gary. But I think that the instructions about women being in submission in the assembly and men leading in the assembly are are somewhat general. It's about teaching and and, and exercising authority. Now then, well, no, I, I would go back to First uh, Timothy two and verse twelve. He says, "And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over right. a man." So there's teaching, but and then authority. there's no specific definition of what that authority is. No, and and, and, and that, that's why it's probably relevant in some fashion to the culture that you're in. Right. Let me see if I can give a crazy illustration here. When we uh, have the Lord's Supper in our assembly. Uh, we have a table up front where the communion elements, the fruit, the uh, vine, and the bread are in containers and so forth. And we generally on Sunday, as our custom, which I think is perfectly legitimate, we have someone that goes up in front when it's time for the Lord's Supper and gives some instruction about that, what we're doing and why, reads a scripture usually or two about what the Lord did and told us to do in 1 Corinthians or somewhere else about the Lord's Supper. So everybody knows what we're doing and why and gets your mind focused on that. Now, Usually there's a couple of people standing on either side of this fellow. He may ask one of them to lead in prayer. He may not. We've changed things a little bit because of this virus, but we usually have one man in the center and two on either side. And then, and then when, the, when he prays, they take the trays, hand them the, the men, and they distribute it through to the audience. So say it's a little different right now, but close. Now, I don't particularly think in, in a uh, 
prima facie way that those men standing there on the side, who a lot of times don't say anything, they just hand out the elements, I don't think they're exercising any authority in the church. On the contrary, they are servants. They're servants. But now probably in our culture, the way we've done things in churches and other places, when people sit in the audience and look at those men, they're up front, they're 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 doing something official, they look like they're exercising some authority. And so in that case, I think it wouldn't be good to have a woman there. But I can certainly see that in a different set of cultural circumstances. You know, be sexist here. I think it's a very good thing for a woman to serve me food. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's. let's Why well, it's not a, she's not exercising authority when she brings. I don't. Food I don't like. People. I don't like what ifs. But I have been in congregations that when they met, the only people there were women. Uh, yes, I have been that in that situation where yes. I was the only man, and I know some where there's all women there. Yes. So what are they going to do? Not have the Lord's Supper? Not speak, could, of course. Could, could the woman teach or preach sure. other women? And the answer is yes. Because she's not exercising any authority over them. Now, I didn't get into a lot of other exits. What about his man doesn't yeah. know anything or if it's a boy? You know, you get into all that. But I think that ends up sometimes missing the point. Of we, we, sh- we should try to figure out where this exercise of authority is taking place. Some of the things we do don't involve an exercise of authority. Some things do. Okay, uh, And so that that would be a case where each church or in each civilization, as it were, down through time. They have to figure that out. The problem is just simply ignoring what Paul says in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy about, I should say, about women being in subjection in, in deciding what to do. And I think that's probably partly where this question of can a woman baptize is coming from. Now, I would say there are circumstances where, in the view of the people involved and perhaps our own culture, women baptizing someone publicly would be exercise, especially if there are men there that can do that, I think it would be an exercise of authority. Other cases, it wouldn't be. But I find no scriptural... The only way you could come and argue the scriptures teach that um, men have to do the baptizing is because that's sort of what we have in scripture as far as who's doing it. It's far hardly ever mentioned who baptized who exactly. I think there's only one example of, uh, and that was the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, and I think that's the only example where we're told specifically he who baptized, baptized him. Yeah. Now, now, Paul and Silas baptized the Philippian jailer at some point, and Lydia, but it doesn't say exactly, even though Paul taught them, who exactly put them under the water. Yes. We wouldn't know that. Uh, but uh, but some, that, that authority, just because you have well, all these men are doing that, I have to say that's a little bit limited when you look at the fact that, for example, every time the Lord's Supper was taken, an example in the New Testament, was taken in an upper room, the only times we see it being taken is in an upper room. Are we to conclude that the Lord's Supper can only be taken on the second floor of a building? I don't think that's what's meant at all in those examples. Or It isn't something that's inherent in the teaching of how something is to be done. And, they say, and I think the same thing is true in this case about whether, the, whether only women, only men can baptize. I think that we see that in the Bible, but that's because of the role people are playing. But I see no emphasis placed upon some church official acting in some kind of sacred duty doing the baptizing. Um, that's that's how the Catholic Church presents it, but I don't think that's how the Bible would present it. Well, I may be case. wrong about uh, being able to identify people who baptize. Paul does say in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except he, he does Christmas and Gaius. Yes. He does mention those men. But he's trying to say, I baptized some of you, but not others, and it doesn't make any difference. That's, that's right. the point Paul's making. 
it makes no difference who does the baptizing. It makes a difference as to what you believed and what you intended to do. And so there are plenty of people listening to us this morning, Gary, who have been, quote-unquote, baptized. But they've been baptized after they've been taught that they were already saved by believing only, by faith only. And then later, some other time later, they were baptized. I will tell you that your thought process there is incorrect. And I don't, I'm not, not according I, to Scripture. I think it's not according to Scripture. I think that indicates perhaps a need to reconsider whether that's actual Bible baptism or not, because you weren't doing by, by what you were thinking. What the Bible says is baptism for the remission of sins. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. That's not what's taught in, in most evangelical churches today, other places like that. Or others in the audience have, have, were baptized when they were infants. Yes, they were baptized, but they were sprinkled, had water poured on them. They weren't even immersed, and they certainly couldn't believe and repent of their sins and confess Christ's name like the Bible pictures about people being baptized. So I would say for certain they need to reconsider their baptism. Those, that's the important part of it. What did you intend to do? What did you know the Bible taught? What did you, how did you respond to the Lord? What were you doing? And the, the, we no, were the kids, we'd dunk each other in the water all the time in the swimming pool. We were technically, in Greek, baptizing someone because we were dipping them. But there was no baptism in the name of Jesus Christ going on there. Well, there's another thing that's important here is what does God do at that point? Yes. That, that's, that's one of the things that I think people just simply don't understand or want to ignore. God forgives your sins at that point. It's not at belief, and we've talked about that in, in, in our lessons here. Once you mentally acknowledge God in terms of your belief in him, you're not forgiven of your sins upon that thing, that acknowledgement. You, God wants to see your faith, and he has to see something that comes from that. And so when you go to Acts 2.38, um, Basically, Peter says, what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's, it's, it, that, it leads to that. In, in Acts 22 and 16, Paul is, is told, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So in and, and 1 Peter 3.21, he says, you know, There is an antitype now which saves us baptism. He specifically says those things. Those three scriptures cannot be denied that this is the point at which God forgives your sins. If you want to follow the scriptures, you've got to admit those exist. Exactly. And, and take all those things into account. The, the other passage that I mentioned a couple times in the last few months, and I want to read it again right now since you brought this up here, is in Colossians chapter 2. This is often overlooked in reference to salvation and baptism. But I referred to it earlier. Paul says there, in whom, speaking of Christ, verse 11, Colossians 2, verse 11. In whom ye also are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In other words, it's not a physical circumcision, a spiritual circumcision. You Christians are. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism. There's the burial, that's the dipping in baptism. Wherein you also are risen with him through faith in the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. So if you have faith that God raised Christ from the dead, when you are baptized, you are participating in the working of God or the oper I'm reading the King James. I think some versions say operation of God. Some versions say working of God. So is baptism a work? It's a work, but it's a work of God, not you. Now, people make up other works like saying Hail Marys, 
and doing so much penance, they make up their other own works to be saved, or saying so many prayers, or doing this, that, the other, helping old ladies across the street. But baptism is not one of those works of men that can't save you. It's faith in the working of God by being buried with Christ in baptism. Now, I think that has to be taken into account uh, by those who preach a doctrine of faith only, because here he's talking about uh, baptism as essential to salvation. It's connected to the resurrection of Christ, and it's the working of God or the operation of God. Anyway, I, I, I just I don't think that verse is brought up very much, and it should be, especially in our thinking. And that's why Gary and I teach and believe that the New Testament teaches that baptism is essential to salvation, not some ritual that's done when you're born, not something that you do that you don't have any, you don't participate in. It's, that's why we keep emphasizing. Baptism is about you submitting to burial in Christ because you believe and have confessed his name and repent of your sins. It's about what you do in response to what God says. Well, there's another passage that, that goes on. I think, you know, I agree, Mike, with what you say. It's, it's not our work. It's God's work in baptism, and that's Titus 3, yes. uh, beginning verse 4. He says, not by works of righteousness, which, he, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. God does the saving through the washing of regeneration. That's his work. That's his you, work. You have, a response to, you have a responsibility to respond to God and do what he says. It isn't because you're trying to earn your salvation. Because you're trying to obey God. There's a big difference in those two things. And people say, well, I'm going to do X number of good works. I'm going to be saved by that. Or I've committed this sin, so I'll do ten other things now to make up for that. That's what Paul's talking about. Or keeping the keeping some kind of ritual commandments from the law of Moses to save you. Or saying so many Hail Marys, our fathers, or whatever they are. That's the works that Paul, that Paul was condemning. Not you obeying God by doing what's right. So, Anyway, that's why we emphasize that baptism is about your response to God, not about the person who did it for you. Now, the Catholic Church has to go into this big, uh, big deal, and I forgot the name of the doctrine, because if you teach that the person who baptizes someone is dispensing the grace, that they are important, therefore a priest or a church official has to be dispensing the grace through their personal action, through what they do, either by handing you the communion and praying over it, or by baptizing you, or whatever it is they do. They dispense the grace personally as Christ's representative. That's the idea. And so therefore they have to be holy. Well, what about these priests and archbishops and bishops that have been committing all of these sexual sins for all these years, even in our own lifetimes? What does that imply about those that they, they, that they baptize? They all this grace to people, supposedly, and baptize people and, and baptize babies and given out communion. And they're wicked sinners. Now, then, so the church has a way around that. Well, they personally may be wicked, but they're, when they're acting in their official capacity as a priest, they're, they're not responsible. That, that covers them. They're not responsible. I guess there's an element of truth in that in a general sense that just because a person who preaches the gospel to you is wicked, and I've known some of them, doesn't mean that what they said was wrong necessarily. That's what Paul's saying in Philippians 1 there when he says about some preach Christ of the Indian strife right. and so forth. That he, he wasn't opposed to what they were teaching, even though they were wicked men. I understand that point. Basically, he was but, saying, I don't care whether they're but, wicked or not, as long as they preach what they should but be he preaching. He wasn't saying that 
that in the case of those men, that somehow they were holy and they had to dispense the grace of the church, like the Catholic Church is saying. And, and uh, that if anybody else does it, it's invalid. It's invalid because anybody else does it. Now, this goes back to this idea of baptism. You're not, you're not any more married because a priest or a preacher does a ceremony than you are in God's eyes if you do what the law says and you commit yourself to one another. Uh, there, that, and uh, so who is doing the officiating, as it were, doesn't matter. Anyway, that's another whole subject. Gary, you want to say any more about that? You want to move on? Well, we can no, move on I, if you're ready. I just want to reiterate the point that it depends on if, if, if a woman is faced with this, that, that was the question, can a woman baptize someone? Then it's more or less what she believes and the circumstances around that in terms of public or private what things. What she actually does. Yes. What she actually does. I got you. And I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that at all. Now, let me give you the numbers again, in case you want to call in. This is this show is called We Are Just Christians. I'm Mike Schmidt. Gary Jones is the co-host, and we're here each Sunday morning to talk with you about what the Bible says about issues of the day, personal issues, religious issues, spiritual issues. We'll talk about it. We, we would love for people to call in who don't even believe in God or, or, ha, or certainly are not happy with religion. We'd love for you to call in. We promise we'll treat you with respect and listen to what you're saying. And we'd like to talk with you about that, not so we can bait you or make you look bad, but so we can uh, have a conversation with each other. And we're going to try to give you a Bible answer. So if you want to call the show, we are just Christians. Call 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590. You can also text us. Gary, we haven't got any text this morning. I'm kind of surprised. Unless my phone is off and I don't realize it. Um, well, I was going to say, Mike, you know, one of the things that we might discuss a little bit more about baptism is who is a good candidate for baptism in other words what are some of the things that we that one should know before one commits their life to Christ and to be baptized and I think that might be a, a fair you know discussion about what we're talking about in being baptized I'm not even sure we agree about that I have to think about well, it but I, I'm not sure it's very much you got to know. I don't think there's Bible a Bible scholar. You've got to know what you that you want to be saved and God can save you. Well, there, there, the there's God. the implication is that you should know something about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There should be some some knowledge about that, but we're not not told exactly what knowledge that is. When you look at the case like the Philippian jailer who was a Gentile, he he couldn't have known too much. Some of the other people did, and knowledge is going to vary. But I don't think it requires you going through a catechism class and, be, and becoming a partial Bible scholar before you can be baptized. Uh, it's about, once again, what relationship do you want to have with God? What do you think about yourself? If, uh, and so it's about whether you realize that you, have, you are a sinner, have sinned, and you need forgiveness of that. And the only way to have forgiveness is to come to Jesus Christ and have his blood cleanse you, and that you're willing to turn away from that old life and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in your life and Lord of the universe. Now, when you confess those things, and you're, you're, you can be baptized. What hinders me? Well, here's water, and the only thing hinders you, Pete, says in Acts 8, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, when you say the Son of God, you know, you're opening up, like you say. Yeah, and, Paul, okay. and Paul did include in the, in the Roman letter, he says, you believe that he's the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead. That was That's the proof of being the Son of God. There's, there's resurrection. That's what makes it right. So there are some elements of knowledge. But as far as you say, well, I've, I didn't go to church when I was a kid. I don't know much about the Bible. Uh, this, that. If you are going to wait to be baptized until you 
have extensive Bible knowledge and know all the answers. You're never going to do it. That's it's true. not about that. It's about you wanting to come to God and have a new life and be forgiven. Now then, the learning takes place after. That's what Jesus says. Go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, Te- Teaching them. Teaching them to observe all. After you baptize them, you teach them after you baptize them to observe all things I've commanded you. And so that, there's teaching before, and then there's more teaching afterwards. There's a lifelong, lifetime of teaching. So but, no, you don't have to know a lot. Now, I, I am also, I am opposed to baptizing children who can't even really understand what it means for Jesus to be born of a virgin or resurrected from the dead, and they're not, they may not even be responsible for their own actions as, as uh, young people. Now, that's a debate about what age that is, but I, I've seen some who are simply, it's much more likely when you baptize a person six, seven, eight years old, that they're simply responding to, to what they feel as pressure from a Adults to do something to please the adults. Adults are their friends. Or friends, whoever may be at the moment. And that's that's a problem. All right, we have a call, Gary. Uh, Jerry, are you there? Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Gary. How are you doing? I attended a Lutheran church for a long time. And the uh, Eucharist that's kept in the tabernacle, I realize that it's all symbolism. Uh, but is the uh, blood of Christ, the wine, is that also kept in the tabernacle? And what does the tabernacle represent? What is it supposed to symbolize? And I'd like to listen off, oh, Mike, the question is about the Eucharist. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Okay, great. Thanks for calling, Jerry. I appreciate it very much. Good question. Um, I'm not sure about all the, I'm not sure about the practices of every church that are, it's out there. I do know that, for example, Gary, I don't know if I told you this, I was at a, Messianic Jewish service here a few months ago and uh, visiting there and they had this it looked like kind of like a wardrobe up front had some inscriptions on it and at some point assembly they assembly they go and they get out of that the Torah uh, the copy of the law and they get you know the elements of the Lord's Supper come out and that's uh, from what was explained to me this is the tabernacle quote unquote the tabernacle in the Bible first of all the word tabernacle We'll deal with two words, Eucharist and tabernacle, but tabernacle first. The ta- tabernacle is a word for tent in Hebrew. It means a place to live, a place where something dwells. So when the children of Israel went, were in the wilderness, one of the first things the law of Moses, he instructed them through Moses, very elaborate instructions how to make a tabernacle that he could dwell in. It was a tent that would be taken down and put back up, and part of that tent was the holy place, part was the most holy place where God would actually dwell in this section of the tabernacle called the most holy place in the Ark of the Covenant. His glory would be at or in the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim that were made there. And it would all be taken down and then carried wherever they were going in the wilderness. And so the word tabernacle means God dwelling with us. And so people have the idea uh, then that in the temple God, well, God did dwell with Israel in the tabernacle, and then later when they built the actual permanent temple under Solomon, that was later then rebuilt under uh, Zeotil and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, that that, uh, I think I got that right, I don't know about Nehemiah, that he built the walls. Nehemiah was the wall. Uh, Z- J- Joshua, Zeotil, and Jeremiah there, and, and after the captivity. A different, different Joshua. They, they re- different Joshua. They rebuilt the, the, ta- the temple and had that most holy place there and so forth. God dwelt in there, in, in the middle of his people. Now, what's happened, in, we have no instruction in, in the New Testament about that, except the idea that 
got that it said when Christ came in John 1, that the word became flesh and, quote, dwelt among us, John 1, 10, 1, 14. The word dwelt there is the, is the word for tabernacle or tented or lived among us. So the tabernacle was representative of God dwelling with his people in the Old Testament. It was a physical place. In the New Testament, Jesus coming in the flesh is God dwelling among his people, okay, tabernacling with us. And then we have these references all through there. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. That's the idea of tabernacling and so forth. Um, we, you see the same kind of reference in Hebrews chapter 2 about Christ come, becoming in the flesh and tabernacling among men. Now what some churches, then you have the Lord's Supper being instituted. The Bible never calls what we call the Lord's Supper here. And what the Bible calls the Lord's Supper, it never calls it the Eucharist. That's a word that's made up. Centuries and centuries later, after many doctrines had changed, this word Eucharist. I understand what people are talking about, and they don't use it. I'm not criticizing people to use it except to say that I think sometimes it's used without really knowing what the Bible says, which is the Bible calls that meal that Christians partake of, that symbolic meal, it calls it the Lord's Supper and Communion in the book of 1 Corinthians and the book of Acts. Either those two things. So here we refer to that meal as the, as the, as the Lord's Supper and or communion, not the Eucharist, because Eucharist is a, a Greek word meaning good gift, and that's something that's been established by the Catholic Church first, and then maybe Lutheran churches later, that, once again, it's the priest dispensing the sacraments to the people. Here's Christ's body and blood. The priest is the one who gets to dispense those elements to the people because they're holy and nobody can touch them unless he touches them and dispenses them to you. And it becomes more of a ritual. So rich, and the New Testament says nothing about anything like that. It <clears> says <throat> each one took of the bread and drew the vine, and they, they, they remembered the Lord when they did that. Now, what some churches do, though, because they believe that this becomes literally, the Catholic Church believes in transubstantiation, <clears throat> this fruit of the vine and bread, literally become... When the priest blesses it, it literally becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. Transubstantiation. The substance of the bread becomes the flesh, and the fruit of the vine becomes the blood. So when the priest blesses it, it literally becomes that. And so they often house this, what they then consider a holy thing, this element, in a tabernacle, or as it were, a house, a little, I would call it a cabin or a wardrobe. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're portable, that's what I've seen. And that's, I think that's what Jerry's referring to. Now, we have no mention of anything like this in the New Testament. So when churches do this, they're, they're simply, as it were, making up their rules about how to do this because we have no indication that these elements of the Lord's Supper, the fruit of the vine and the unleavened bread, that they were housed in anything, that they literally become the body and blood of Christ. We believe we believe here that they are symbolic of and represent in the sense of our <clears throat> body. So when we take those things, they are bread and they are fruit of the vine. But in us partaking of them, we are symbolically partaking of the body and blood of Christ. And all that, that means, not physically, but but spiritually to us, that we are we are we are communing with him when we do this in these elements of eating a meal with him. And so the Christian then, he is to remember the Lord in this. 
and call to mind what is being done, not to receive holiness from this. We, we don't believe the New Testament teaches that taking the Lord's Supper, or some would call it the Eucharist in this case that Jerry's referring to, that it makes somebody holy, and it forgives your sins. If, you're, if you sinned against Christ, you need to repent of your sins. The Lord's Supper won't make you holy. The Lord's Supper, Supper is a meal to remember the Lord and that you're his servant. You're his child. You've been saved. You're so part there's of the, a lot of differences between what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper and what's practiced by denominational churches. Well, and basically it's, it's, it's a reminder that you are part of a covenant relationship with God. Right. That that that's that new covenant. You are a you are under a different covenant than the Mosaic but he law. But it was the blood of the new covenant. Yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 the it's that's the blood that forgives you, the blood of Christ, Christ, not the blood of bulls and goats anymore. And so there's this mention. Well, now when you go to um, let me just let's just go over there. You know, the verses are familiar to you and I, I suppose. And so sometimes uh, we don't uh, we may take them for granted in our thinking. Well, the only but, the only comment that I would make right. is about the tabernacle. It seems to have an implication, particularly in the Old Testament, of something of a temporary nature. It's a tent that could be moved it's around. A, yeah, it's, it's it some, was temporary because Christ, the true tabernacle, was coming. Right. It was a temporary thing, and and I was reading one account that the Jews at some point in time, actually, if they had a house built of stone or block or wood or whatever would often go up on the roof and, and put up a small tent or lean-to, and that would be how they would celebrate that tenting or that tabernacling, if you will. Right. Uh, so it, it, it had a temporary nature to it. Uh, they were to expect something else to come, and I think that was part of what the message was with it. Uh, that was just my, my thought about it. Uh, the passage that a lot of people are not familiar with, strangely enough, about the Lord's Supper. Once again, not called the Eucharist in the Bible. You're not going to find that word in the Bible as such, referring to the Lord's Supper. But it means good gift, and so it's, it's got a lot of other meanings. But it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and the, the Lord's Supper is not the Last Supper. That's something different. It's something different that Christ established, and Paul... Uh, gives the Lord's instructions about this supper. He says, for I, verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So Paul says, I've, God gave me this information to tell you what to do, and I'm giving it to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. So there's nothing here about making it holy and so forth. The word blessed in the New Testament here doesn't mean pronounce a blessing upon. It's translated give thanks. That's the way it's translated throughout the, uh, most other places is give thanks. He gave thanks to God for the bread, and he gave it to them and said, remember me in doing this. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. There's Gary's their idea. Right. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, taking it and drinking it, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So what's the purpose of the Lord's Supper? It's a remembrance. It's a remembrance. It's not about forgiving your sins or making you holy or dispensing grace. It's about remembering the Lord's death till he comes again. 
And, and the nothing, Lord's death is what makes me a Christian. It's what saves me. There's nothing in this that indicates any idea of the actual changing of these items as no, you take of them. Not at all. The, all they can say is, this is my body. So that, they take the word is there to mean uh, something actually intransitive. I guess you'd say, grammatically speaking. Right. This is a table I'm pounding on here. But, but you're doing it in remembrance. That's the action that's there. And that's that's it just doesn't to me, it doesn't make sense that you would take from this that there's some miraculous change in what happens. Well, I tell you this. Now, this may sound a little clinical, Gary, but if, if I believed in I tell you a way you can prove transubstantiation. You have a you have a person go to a Catholic church, have the police, the priest, the police, the priest. Bless the bread and through the vine, have them drink it and take it, and then get get a scalpel out and cut that post person open. And when you examine the stomach contents of that person, you should be able to find actual blood and, and flesh. actual ble- flesh, flesh in that stomach. If that through the vine and bread literally becomes the body and blood of Christ, you won't find fruit. You won't find grape juice or fruit of the vine, and you won't find bread, you'll find flesh and blood. Now, that obviously, oh, that's so ridiculous. Well, that's just how ridiculous it is to say that that's what happens. No one's ever seen that done. It's probably been chances where you could see it done. But they don't do it because it's not what happens. It's a memorial, a remembrance. It's a symbol. And, and, uh, therefore, and it's not about literally... And that's the problem, because the Mass itself, Gary, is about re-crucifying Christ. That's why they have literal body and blood. The doctrines got so have become so warped uh, down through the centuries by all this tradition, Catholic tradition, that you're actually re-crucifying Christ every time you have a Mass. You're shedding his blood and breaking his body, as it were, every time. And yet the Bible in Hebrews chapter 6 warns about the punishment you know, of those who sin because they would crucify Christ afresh. He says it's a bad thing to crucify Christ again. Yeah. And yet that's what's practiced in all that, these masses basically, all Basically, the time. you do that when you purposely sin. Yes, and that don't is. repent of it. You're, you're right. You're just crucifying him again because, as it were. Now, the point is, so, when, but when, so the point is, Jerry and others, when you read what the New Testament says about the so-called Eucharist, you see that it's a lot different than what people say. So we don't have a particular cabinet that we bring out to bring out the elements of Christ's body and his blood because we believe his body is the tabernacle of of God dwelling among men. He he is that. And so we don't have a special tabernacle. The, The elements that we use are ordinary bread and through the vine. They're, they're only special in that we remember them as being Christ's body and blood. We remember his death in so doing this. And so we just don't have any other instruction in the New Testament about that. When you, when you, if you want to start making stuff up, then you can make up whatever you want in the long run about this. But I, I would challenge you to be able to go back and find what the New Testament says about it and justify it from there. So in any event, that would be my basic answer to this Eucharist. So uh, for those who are listening, including Jerry, thank you for calling very much, by the way. When you go to a church and you take of this supper, it's not about forgiving your sins. 
It's not about making you holy once you do that. It's about you remembering that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to save you. And that his body became a perfect sacrifice for you. And that his blood being shed was shed for your, the remission of your sins if you're a Christian. And Christians, every Lord's Day, if they're following the New Testament, because that's when they keep this, every Lord's Day are called back to that event. That's why we here are not, we're not just going to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper on Easter or Christmas. We do it every first day of the week, because that's what the scriptures say. They came together on the first day of the week to break bread. That's the special breaking of bread, Act 20 and 7. And, and as often as we do this, which is every first day of the week, we remember the Lord's death. We, we literally says proclaim it. This is one of the signs that the pagan world, unchristian world, sees every Sunday. Not just people getting together, but they should be seeing these Christians partaking of these elements of bread and fruit of the vine in remembrance of a Savior who died and is now alive again. We don't have to march to Mecca to go to a grave. We don't have to do anything like that. Make a pilgrimage to Solomon's tomb or David's tomb. Or we, to Jerusalem or to, to Jerusalem. a temple that's not right. there. Right. We, we go before the Lord every first day of the week. When we take this supper, we proclaim to the world that our Savior is alive and he's coming again. Because he says you will do this, uh, you, you proclaim his death until when? Until he comes again. Well, if he's not raised from the dead, he's not coming again. And so when you take the Lord's Supper, Jerry, you're remembering the Lord's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And when you take it on the first day of the week, as you're instructed, remembering this, you're proclaiming to the world that he's coming back to, 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 to judge the world and to save his people. So that's the meaning of the Lord's Supper. It's a great meaning. It just does. There's just not some elaborate ceremony, some mysterious ceremony of cabinets and hiding the things and covering them and bringing them out. And There's not all that because none of that's in the New Testament for us to follow. And so well, therefore, we need to be careful of following the traditions of men rather than uh, I think what you're looking, you're looking for, first, uh, first Corinthians 15 and 16, is that the, the one I'm looking for? Now, if Christ has preached that he has risen from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. That passage, that uh, that's chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, going through, I believe, 19. That passage really sums up the importance of, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And how, how essential it is. And when you have these so-called Christian pastors and professors here who do not believe in the literal resurrection of Christ, you need to get away from those people. There are plenty of them out there and plenty of churches that don't believe in this literal bodily resurrection because they are denying the very gospel of Jesus Christ, the thing that gives it power. Yeah, I, and they I, call I, themselves Christians when they do that. I'm sorry to be so blunt about it. Well, there, that's one the of the problem. questions. That, that's how vain they are. One of the questions we got is, how do you recognize the church? This is one of the ways you it's recognize preaching the actual bodily resurrection, resurrection of Christ. Yes. Right. 
And Gary, that's the other thing. So when I take the supper here this morning, in my in my mind, from reading these scriptures, I, I'm being forced to remember that I can't save myself. It was the Lord by His mighty hand who saved me, and that I was a sinner, and that even now He forgives my sins, and His blood does that, and His body provides the sacrifice. But I'm also saying to the world. That whatever you say, you can say whatever you want to about me or my Savior. He's coming back, and I believe he was raised from the dead. And I'm going to keep doing that. The Lord, And I think that's why churches are always under attack. Because when true churches of Christ partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, they are giving evidence to the world that there are a few people, even 7,000 in Israel, who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and who believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that he's alive and we remember we remember him every first day of the week and that he's coming back. So it's a it's a powerful statement. And I believe as our lifetimes go on, my life goes on, it's going to become more and more under attack and it's become it's going to become more and more significant for churches to participate in this supper every first day of the but week. But I, I would invite our listeners to if you turn to that I think it's First Corinthians. Is First Corinthians? First Corinthians fifteen. Yes. Uh, the whole chapter is about the resurrection right. of Christ. Right. First Corinthians fifteen, verses twelve through nineteen. And our, our resurrection too. Right. Underline those verses. That's an important passage. But this is the stumbling block to the Greeks and to people today, the pagans today among us, the non-religious, that Christ actually was raised from the dead, and so there's this whole um, debate about that. But we, we need to realize that we're going to have to stand up for this, and we need to do so publicly. You know, when you go back, Gary, in history, and from the, in the second, third centuries, and you read some of the early writings, some of the letters that of Pliny and others that they wrote about the uh, about the Christians, that they were trying to um, tell the Romans and others what these Christians were doing, what they were about, you know. And one of the things that they always seem to mention, or several of them do, is that they came together the first day of the week and they took this supper. They describe how it was taken among them. So from the earliest writings we have outside the New Testament about churches, this is what they were doing. Not elaborate ceremonies, but simple ceremonies. Later they became elaborate, encrusted, I would say, with traditions and different names. But that's certainly from the earliest on what they did. Now, Ken texts in and says, Jesus is the bread from heaven provided by God, just as God provided manna from heaven. Manna in the Hebrew means, what is it? He provided manna in the wilderness for the Hebrews. And they, they had to have faith to take the manna, as he instructed. They couldn't take more or less. They'd take enough for the one day. They couldn't take more than that. And so this was a very act of faith to believe it. This manna, he would give them twice as much on one day. It wouldn't spoil for the Sabbath day. If they took twice as much on any other day, it would spoil before they could eat it. And so Jesus is this man, this bread from heaven that comes to us. And we, by faith, have to accept him. Uh, and that's part of this, perhaps part of the meaning of the bread, that I am the bread of life, Jesus said in John 8, some other places. And basically, the, the blood is a reminder of the new covenant, I believe. That's what Yes, and that's because it is the, it, the blood of bulls and goats uh, was offered up on Mount Sinai to ratify the covenant God made with the, with the Jews uh, on Mount Sinai. And now the blood of Jesus Christ is shed for all men, not just for the Hebrews. Uh, 
is shed, and, and God established a new covenant with man, which is, of course, fulfilling the covenant God made with Abraham that we discussed a week or two ago. And so um, that's, that's what the blood is. It also is the idea that we can't be forgiven without the shedding of blood of, the blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I won't go back to this again, we remember that when we were baptized into Christ, we were buried with him in baptism. And Romans 6 then says that we come in contact with the blood of Christ when we do this, his death. And so that's all how it links together. Well, Gary, we got about three and a half minutes left. What do you want? You want to? Uh, I got a couple of the things here. Well, uh, you got about time to read off what the subjects are. I don't know well, I'll tell you. To... Here's one. We'll talk about this later. I just love this headline. Franklin Graham, which is Billy Graham's son, he's my age, says that Jesus would have taken the COVID-19 vaccine. So I read that and I thought, I wonder how Franklin Graham knows, knows that what Jesus would have done about a COVID-19 vaccine. But when you read the article, he just basically asserts it. But since he's some kind of holy man to people, it's supposed to be, you know, that's supposed to be a pronouncement. And my sermon this morning is going to be about that idea of what the Bible says in the book, chapter, and verse about what we're doing. And well, people I, all the time are doing things like this in the name of Jesus Christ, just making up statements, making up pronouncements about what Jesus did, would do or wouldn't do without any authority from Jesus at all about that. And one of the most egreg- I don't know what Jesus would do yeah. about a vaccine. One of the most egregious things about that sort of thing, Mike, to me, is what's called the sinner's prayer. Oh, well, yeah, that's another and, 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 I mean, right. we, could, we could spend shows on that one. But basically, I was in communication with someone, and I asked the question, what must I do to be saved? And they said, pray the sinner's prayer. And I said, okay, where do I find that in Scripture? Mm-hmm. And after about two weeks, he came back and says, well, it's not really in Scripture. So and so now, so how do you know if it's not an instruction from God? And I think that's what you're saying here. We well, don't. yes. Now, we if don't. You, if we you don't read know. the article, you know he's giving all kind of other things about it. How doctors are a gift of God, which is true to save people's lives, and uh, believing in I believe, of course, I believe in modern medicine. I just don't believe everything they tell me about modern medicine sometimes. And there's a lot of, unfortunately, there's a lot of political element, elements now, and all the everything is injected with politics. And so it makes it difficult for people. There's a big debate about some of these vaccines, whether they use aborted fetal, fetal tissue from aborted babies and so forth. There's a big controversy about that. And, and we, we can discuss those issues. I'm discussing here, not whether you should get a vaccine. I don't care if you get a vaccine or not. It's fine with me if you do. It's fine with me if you don't. But how do you know what Jesus would have done? There's only one way to know what Jesus would have done. Read God's word and find out what he would do. This statement, what would Jesus do, was big a few years ago. Oh, yes. Well, the big thing you should know is, what did Jesus do? That's what people don't know. They can make up a lot of stuff about what they think he would do, but what did he do is much more important, because that's in the Bible. One of the things we keep saying, and I'll do this quickly, is whenever he was asked a question, most often his reply was, what, Mike? Have you you not not read? read? Have you not read what the Scriptures say? Exactly. All right. Well, we're going to have to stop, uh, get wind this up here. We appreciate your uh, being with us this morning. You can reach us by email at justchristiansatatt.net, justchristiansatatt.net. You can also take a look at our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. We'd invite you to come and join us this morning, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie. We'd, be, we'd love to have you and hope you can uh, tune in again next week to the show. May God bless you. And thanks for tuning in.
You've been listening to We Are Just Christians on 1590 WPSL, Port St. Lucie.